Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Lindy Hume AM is one of Australia's leading directors, acknowledged internationally for fresh interpretations of a wide variety of repertoire and for progressive artistic leadership of a number of Australian arts organisations, including Opera Queensland, Sydney Festival and the Perth International Arts Festival. She was also the first artistic director of West Australian Opera, artistic director of Victoria State Opera and then Oz Opera. Lindy has most recently been creative director of the Four Winds Easter Festival, Bermagui, and is currently artistic director of the Ten Days on the Island Festival in Tasmania. Lindy has just directed a new production of Mozart's Idomeneo in a co-production between Victoria and Opera and Opera Australia. The production has just finished a season at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne and will be seen in Sydney from February 20th to March 15th in 2024. It will be a part of a thrilling summer season programmed by Lindy as guest creative director for Opera Australia. To discuss all of that and much more, it is a delight to welcome Lindy Hume to the Stages podcast. And just a heads up, unfortunately we encountered some moments of unstable connection in our Zoom conversation. So please bear with us as the pearls of wisdom from Ms Hume are sublime. Here's my chat with Lindy Hume. Lindy Hume, hello. Hello, Peter. <laughs> Thank you for, for joining the Stages podcast. It's uh, lovely to have you. My pleasure. Nice to be here. First of all, very important question, did the dishwasher arrive safely? The dishwasher did arrive, arrive safely. Um, I live in the country and uh, we have a very pesky bush rat who absolutely ate through the pipes so I have and then and then fused the dishwasher so new dishwasher and steel mesh pipes pesky rat yeah Mm. yeah yeah I love that one of our preeminent creatives in the country uh, still has to uh, attend to the domestic chores (laughs) certainly does goodness me (laughs) we all don't we all have to absolutely absolutely (laughs) Now, Lindy Hume, where do I start? Artistic Director of West Australian Opera, Victorian State Opera, Oz Opera, Opera Queensland, 10 Days on the Island Festival, Director of the Perth International Arts Festival, the Sydney Festival, Creative Director of the Four Winds Festival. Now, I assume with each of those positions, you've had an office and a desk. Tell me what has travelled with you in each of those engagements? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, okay, I I'll usually take paintings with me so I, I like to have paintings in my um in my office that remind me of home or 
or artists that I like. So paintings definitely come with me if you're talking about material things. Um, you know, the the stuff that I, I spend also a lot of time in hotel rooms with my other life as an opera director. So there are a few things that I always take with me, I always take um you know, candles and 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 weirdly, I take a bit of cooking paraphernalia so that I can um, feel at home. So I think, I guess, um, the nub of that question is, you know, how do I, with all the different places I go to, how do I make myself at home? And I guess the reality is that I kind of try and create create a sense of home wherever I am, both with things I take with me or and or people and so I've got kind of little family units all around um all around Australia and in New Zealand where I've spent a lot of time too yoga mat yeah. I take my yoga mat Yo the yoga mat goes wherever I go because it's a sort of centering um thing if I know uh, my yoga mat's unrolled on the hotel floor or the you know apartment where I am I know I'm I've got somewhere to go to it was so much change of environments uh, continually for you. I, I, I guess it's important to keep grounded to home and, and connected. Yeah, it's not always possible. I have to say I just did two back-to-back -back, uh, stints in hotel rooms, one in New Zealand and just now in Melbourne, and it, it does get a bit it does get a bit wearing. Um, when you've got such a beautiful home to come to, you know, as I do, and I, I feel I miss home a lot. Well, let's maybe begin with uh, your recent sojourn to Melbourne, which was to direct a production of Mozart's Domineo for uh, a co-production between Victorian Opera and Opera Australia. You've directed quite a few from the Mozart canon, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been incredibly lucky um, to do that. I mean, I uh, I feel very um, fortunate to have directed two this year, both um, Cosi Fantute and and Domineo, which I'll direct again next year for Opera Australia, the same production. Um, and Cosi finished up for me the third of the Da Ponte, Mozart Da Ponte um, trilogy, the so Don Giovanni, in which I did in 2000. And, uh, 17 in Brisbane and then in 2021 I, I directed The Marriage of Figaro for the first time for New Zealand Opera and now um, Cosi. So that was a great a great pleasure but I'm super excited to be coming back to Idomeneo which I have to say of all the amazing Mozarts that's the one that I most love. Well it was Mozart's favourite opera too I believe. Yeah and I understand why. I think it really... Um, it doesn't declare itself in the same way that Giovanni or or Figaro does do, um, but it it has so many layers that only doing it, um, only living with it, um, reveal. And um, I think it's it's a wonderful thing for a practitioner to do because you do find more depth in it. This is my second production of it. I've directed it for for Pinchgut um, a, a long time ago. I think two thousand and six or something like that. And um, um, and coming back to it is a huge treat. And then uh, to come back and know that I'm going to do it again is is a wonderful iterative process. Um, and yeah, I see why he 
loved it. It's about fathers and sons and, the, and uh, you know, this troubled filial relationship that he had with Leopold is very evident, I think, in, um, in the relationship between Idomeneo and his son, Idamante. The music, of course, is very accessible. Uh, and it, it lends itself to great theatrical interpretation. I've, I've read descriptions of the production, which uh, was just on at the Palais in Melbourne, and it's, it sounds truly awesome. You've used videography from um, the Tasmanian coastal region as part of the uh, yeah. the backdrop to the production. I have, because um, the thing about Idomeneo, there are two completely inescapable, well, many, a few actually, mythology the Greek the Greek myths and gods and mortals and that kind of um, epic um, context is there but the, um, the the two things you cannot escape in in a domineo um, are one the the post-war um, I guess the 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 fallout the the fact that every single single person in the opera is affected by this this terrible <clears throat> bloodshed of the Trojan War and um and the second thing you cannot avoid is the sea um it's uh Idomeneo is from the very beginning in in a battle with Neptune the sea god um and he uh foolishly thinks he can escape um escape the vow that he makes to um, sacrifice the first person he sees on us on the beach when he arrives home in Crete for the in 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 return for his own life and that of his his sailors um, in a in a big storm and uh, and Neptune is the other character that that you we only meet in you know personified in the final in the final um, scene where he appears out of pretty much out of nowhere to completely reverse the action. Um, and it's kind of an amazing moment. But all the way through it, the sea is very present. And having spent um, a lot of my my last 20 years in uh, coastal environments, Tasmania and the south coast of New South Wales, um, and knowing how we Australians respond to epic natural phenomena as 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 appear also in Idomeneo, I thought an Australian um, visceral Australian coastline would be an interest for of an ancient island like Tasmania would be an interesting stand-in for an ancient island, the ancient island of Crete. Um, yeah, so it's worked really well, and um, of course, I'm working with I worked with two incredible screen-based artists, Kat Petman from Ruman Films in Tasmania, with whom I'd worked on with projects with 10 days on the island and Dave Bergman, the videographer who I guess is best known to people through his amazing work on Jekyll and Hyde and the picture of Dorian Gray for Sydney Theatre Company and with whom I had worked um, on a project with uh, for, for Music of Eva, uh, Winter's Journey, the Schubert song cycle, where we had Fred Williams landscapes and um, to play with um, as a visual environment. Um, and that was an incredibly rewarding production. So it was great to bring Dave and Kat together to um, create an environment which was in, entirely um, abstracted but comes from the world of, you know, Australia and Australian landscape we know very well.
I love that you also repurposed a set by American designer Michael Jurgen. Um, sustainability in the arts is a, a necessary consideration, isn't it, moving forward? Yeah, I think so. And it was a very interesting project because it's not just this. It's also the um, production of The Magic Flute, which we've commissioned Kate Gall to, uh, the director Kate Gall to take on, um, again, using the, this Michael Jurgen set from I think it's 1989 or 1990 or something, but it's a, I remember seeing it uh, for the production of Verter that um, that um, uh, Elijah Mashinsky directed it, um, back then, and I remember thinking what a beautiful room it was and how how that room could possibly be other things. And here we are, here we are, you know, many years later, using that room for two Mozarts, um, and and very happily so. Uh, it, it's very versatile and and uh, really just a beautiful play space. So, yeah, Michael Jurgen's beautiful set and, and accordingly his costumes um, and, and, as I say, these amazing uh, projections which have turned that room into the natural world or, and an epic mythological landscape. As I said, um, the production is a co-pro between uh, Vic Opera and Opera Australia. These uh, creative collaborations around the country are becoming more and more vital, aren't they, uh, for yeah. survival of the art form because it, it is an expensive um, art form to, to make. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, collaboration is the future. If we don't collaborate, um, we won't survive. Sustainability, you know, we by up, you know, re repurposing scenery or repurposing costumes is something that that I feel very strongly we should be looking at in in a, an expensive art form like opera, but also uh, collaborations of all kinds, creative collaborations where people bring, I mean, thoughtful thoughtful ones, not not just um, you know for expedience and cost per, cost sharing purposes. I think that's that's a more sort of cynical you know, practical but cynical approach, whereas I think what's really exciting is where collaborations are, where everyone brings something to the table and the out and the end um, is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, the whole is something that everyone is proud of, um, whether you've been a collaborator as a minor collaborator or a major collaborator. I think it's really important that the spirit of collaboration enters the the discourse uh, as well as the practical benefits of collaboration. Of course, saving money is lovely, but it's also about the longevity and the usefulness of these projects that, as you say, are really expensive and need to be considered, I think, need to be considered very carefully before we spend taxpayers' money you know, in that in that way, we need to be very um, responsible makers when we're spending proportionately spending more money than on opera companies than um, say smaller theatre companies or dance companies. Uh, you've recently were engaged uh, by Opera Australia as guest creative director, programming uh, their 2024 summer season uh, in the interim before Joe Davies assumes the role of AD. Uh, it's an exciting program. What were your considerations in serving up the program to an audience? Um, well, there were many. Uh, I was very aware that I didn't want to rain on the new artistic director's parade. Um, she hadn't been announced by then, um, and so we were 
we were kind of flying blind really with who the personality of the new artistic director but i also knew that um what i didn't want was to commit that person to a whole lot of new productions uh that that was in a weird way i was quite keen to um present a program that was a survey of other things that were happening in opera around Australia that hadn't been seen in Sydney. I thought that was that would be an interesting approach to as to collaborate with um, with some of our colleague companies in around the states. Uh, so Opera Queensland with Circa, Victorian Opera, State of South Australia, Pinchgat. Um, Sydney Festival, I thought it was a really um, interesting um, approach to start Sit Beautifully in the Sydney Opera House. And, and there were a couple of um, stand, standout um, options for us. Um, I was really excited to uh, to look at the um, Sarah Giles's beautiful Traviata that had had such a success in Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth, but hadn't been seen in seen in Sydney. Um, that seemed like a too good an opportunity to miss, given that everybody had seen thirty years worth of of Elijah Mashinsky's beautiful production of of Traviata, but thirty years of it. Um, to see something new and something different, really exciting to Circa Opera Queensland and Circa's um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Directed by Yaron Lifshitz, one of the theatre makers, um, really Australia's kind of foremost theatre makers, um, through his work with his company Circa, um, and so that's a that was seemed to be an obvious thing. And then I started looking at this idea of um, about looking at this thing of the Enlightenment and and that work, particularly Orpheus and Eurydice, started to lead to works in the same period. Where um, and then I so for example the Pinchgut Theodora and then the two Mozarts kind of came into the frame there, and all of those works, those Enlightenment era works, started to make me think about what an Enlightenment was and what we needed in this post-COVID um, period of reflection and cultural renewal, and then what the company itself. Um, was considering, and I thought that I sort of thought of one of the of the, of the festival program that I was putting together in um, in Tasmania, which had a theme of radical optimism, and I felt that idea of optimism and hope and and a sense of a new cultural dawn um, seemed to fit a number of things. It seemed to fit us all as a community wanting to come together after after the pandemic with a sense of hope for a different, maybe better future. I think we are all fairly optimistic people, even if it's sometimes hard to be. And it seemed to fit really perfectly with the, where the company was at the time, Opera Australia with a new, in a transition for with new leadership. Um, and I think also just generally, I think that that's what Sydney in summer is about. My experience with um, Sydney Festival uh, and my experience as a Sydney cider is always that January and February are those euphoric months of blue skies and sulphur crested cockatoos and just that sort of wonderful shimmering light 
And that's so these works seem to resonate to me in that optimistic frame of mind for a new year and a new beginning. So that's where it came to. It was pretty simple, really, but that often I'll just go. I mean, I I do love those works. The Enlightenment era is my kind of passion, uh, really, but but I also just acted on instinct because it was a fairly short period I was there. It was really only a six-week period to go in, program the season, cast it, put the creatives together, get it all going, and then jump out and direct a festival. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were some practical considerations, but those things came very smoothly. And um, and also there's repertoire there that hasn't been seen in Sydney for a really long time. Orpheus and Eurydice hasn't been seen on the Sydney Opera House stage for since 1994. Um, the last time Opera Australia did a Domineo was also 1994. So it's it's exciting. Very exciting. Growing up in Sydney, what were um, the artistic influences on you as a kid? Did uh, your parents take you off to see musical theatre or plays or opera indeed? Um, well, they certainly were very um, music-oriented people, my family. My, <clears throat> my brothers are both musicians, um, very good ones, and um, my parents were both huge music fans my dad was a jazz aficionado or jazz tragic really it was could be found doing the that sort of embarrassing thing at the at the uh basement you know all that sort of boom 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 clapping up all that stuff <laughs> so my dad was very much a jazz a jazz fiend um so we had endlessly had you know miles davis in our lives um you know, in the in the uh, in our childhood and growing up, so that's kind of one end of things. And then my mother, who had also ex excellent musical taste in a classical sense, was also drawn to uh, very, you know, much. She loved Janet Baker, and she loved um, also kind of the blues and that sort of thing. So I had my my parents had great musical taste, and that that also. Um, affected me. I was a dancer when I was younger. My, I, I never, they never took me to plays, but they certainly took me to music and um, concerts and things, but also uh, contemporary dance. That was my, my interest. Weirdly, I was this kind of contemporary dance nerd from very early on. And um, so not sort of tap dance or anything like that, but, you know, Martha Graham. <laughs> Merce Cunningham and all kinds of weird things. So I went to Bowdoin Visa Dance Centre and where and and I had um I had Richard Gill teaching me at primary school right through to you know um right you know right right through um I had amazing teachers who taught me great music. Um I had um a te teachers who who would make us at school who would make us listen to things like Peter Sculthorpe's Sun Music and and Penderecki and really weird stuff. I mean, so I I was never scared of, you know, contemporary music or music that wasn't um wasn't <clears throat> standard. So um I I guess my discoveries post all that was stuff that that I hadn't really heard a lot of like classical music as in, you know, 
Mozart, Haydn, that kind of world, that sort of, and Baroque music, which I discovered much later and fell in love with. So I've always had this incredible musical um, background and interest, um, but I'm not a musician. I just work, have just worked in, in music all my life. Can you read I don't music? play an instrument. My brothers do. No, I... I I don't read music, I, except that I work with musical scores have and have done for, you know, over three decades. So uh, I'm very comfortable reading, reading my score for preparing um, my productions, um, but I don't play an instrument myself um, and I'm always su surrounded by, luckily and happily, I'm surrounded by musicians who really do know the inside of a, a score and who um, with whom I have really interesting conversations about deta musical detail. So um, I work very intensely with with conductors and with singers and with musical preparation, um, the people who who and I ask lots of questions about particular musical um, characteristics of of each work, so, but what I do think is that I'm I am musical. I I am I am a, a person who has is feels completely at ease working with music and with musical forces. So and 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 really in, interpreting those those things. So I guess what I do is put myself in the put myself in the place of the audience in terms of the reception of that music and also try and try and bring together the char character situation drama and and the score as one and i was also think in in opera it is the music that comes first so those are the clues that i look for first music and and the libretto uh, your dance background would certainly give you a, an internal musicality yeah 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 that's true and and a movement there's a weird thing of music and movement together um, that has always, ha, ha, I've always had that and that, that now connects to the, the visual as well. So there's the movement, the physicality, the music, the music and physicality that, and as a dancer, that's always been really strong, but also that, that translates to the visual impact of something, like an, a, a big visual moment will be uh, always a big musical moment too. So we're just, uh, it's, always, it's always a an interesting, I, I call it sculpting more than anything else. It's less, it's less about sort of organising the stage and more about sort of creating sculptural um, and a sculpture environment, especially with something like, you know, Idomeneo or, um, or Don Giovanni, that you know, you've got these very strong characters, but they need to move through a musical world. Um, yeah, and I don't know, it's a lot of it is instinct because I've been doing it for such a long time. The other significant character in a narrative is the chorus, of course, um, and and that must present some challenge when you've got to move sixty, sometimes sixty plus people around a stage um, as one on mass. Well, I have to say. Yeah, but I love that challenge. I, I, it's one of my. I feel like it's one of my superpowers. I've been always really lucky to not be intimidated by large numbers of people. I, and again, I talk about this sculptural quality. I, I was really like, um, 
I like big choruses. I like creating big shapes and big, big kind of dramatic moments for them. Um, and and so that to me, the the idea of working with a big chorus is is great, exciting, um, challenging, but also. Uh, it's, you know, there's big architecture and big structure to be, um, to be, you know, apply. So, you know, I love it. I bring me a big, bring me on, bring on a big chorus. I'm, I'm very happy. At the same time, I'm also very happy with small scale stuff. So, but you know, I wouldn't want to do chorus after chorus after chorus after chorus um, uh, operas. But I love a really big one. And Idomeneo is a fantastic chorus opera. It's got, yeah. I think, nine chorus scenes in it. So it's absolutely um, intense as a chorus opera. And I like that. Well, there's so many moving parts. And it's just about fine-tuning each one in order to create that that stage detail that um, yeah. supports the story. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, the artist, the single, the the ensemble, the the artists that you're working with, the ensemble and the tone of that ensemble and the and the kind of collective personality of that ensemble and the collective intelligence of that ensemble, and then finding ways of of really um, you know being a good storyteller. That sounds very simple, but that's bottom line. What I am as a director, as an artistic director, um, you know, everything needs to tell tell a story very clearly and to a to a for a purpose um to an audience our audience now your career arc uh, begins at 16 when uh, you auditioned for extras uh in an opera australia or australian opera production at the time norma um norma. How, how did you hear about that audition and and um it caused you to leave school didn't it um yeah uh well um i did i did i heard about it because i was at i was dancing uh, already i think it may well have come around the same time as me leaving school but um i left school really early as you can tell <laughs> just i've sort of been a, i'm an autodidact i've i've left school early did the dancing thing then did the the um assistant directing thing um and came back to education later in in life um but uh yeah I was a Vestal Virgin in the production of of Norma actually I was the understudy for a Vestal Virgin in the production of Norma <laughs> so it was not very glamorous um and I heard about it through my dance school because a few dancers were extras um and I turned up and there were these amazing people singing in this beautiful music in a chorus and in walked Dame Joan Sutherland and I just thought this was perfectly normal because it was opera why wouldn't she walk through the door and she did and then she opened her mouth and sang Casta Diva and it was literally about a meter and a half away from me on my first day of work in the opera so not a bad way to start and uh, I nearly slid down the paper mache altar that I was I was leaning on because it was just such a big noise and such an extraordinary noise. And everybody, it was such a sort of system. Opera was such a, it, everyone knew what they were doing. And it was a very, I know that sounds very 
sort of silly, but the chorus, the whole thing of having a, a large chorus of people who all knew the music and, you know, all these people who were stage managers and assistant directors and so forth, it just seemed very kind of um, grand to me because I was a contemporary dancer, so which was much more chaotic than what I had just walked into. So it was very appealing. And I like the fact that there were all these different little hierarchies that, you know, you could be a you could be an extra or cover for an cover for an extra, and then uh and then you could be a dance a dancer, and then you could be a maybe, you know, choreographer, and then you could be an assistant director, and then you could maybe be a director. And it seemed to be a good pathway for me. So yes, you're you're observing all that that hierarchy. Um is it when you're at the opera that you you uh, hatched the idea that you'd like to be a, an opera director or was that something that existed when you were doing contemporary dance that, that you wanted to make? No, God, no. No, no. I was interested in choreography. I can't honestly say I was particularly talented as a dancer or a choreographer. <laughs> I don't think I really, uh, I think I was just finding my way. I mean, I was young, you know, and but I think... What I liked, I was very impressed with um, Elke Neidhart, who was then a young assistant director at uh, Opera Australia. And she was, A, extremely beautiful, and she was very, she knew exactly what she was doing and very, you know, she was so, such a wonderful director but also such a wonderful human being and a bit of terrifying for a young young. <laughs> Uh, dancer to see this incredibly capable and efficient German woman, direct, you know, bossing everyone around. So it was really my eye fell on her actually. I thought I want to do what she can do because she's she's impressive. This woman, <laughs> um, and so I I sort of looked at that as really my goal to be an assistant director. And indeed, I was an assistant director. I went, I worked up you know, and did a lot of it for, for no no money and just got got some runs on the board as an assistant director thereafter um, and did that for about eight years and really learned my, you know, old-fashioned word craft um, <clears throat> in, in, in that role. And that's where I learned about choruses. I learned from people, amazing people like John Copley, you know, who really knew his stuff. I mean, funny old-fashioned productions now, but really the building blocks of how to move people around a stage and do it in a way that was supportive of the drama. You know, I had great mentors in that sense. Uh, so you're serving an apprenticeship effectively, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly. I felt like I was in an, an apprentice for, I'd say, eight eight or so years. And then and then I was quite a, a in a different situation, professional assistant, director uh, you know and there are a few of those around now who who literally just are the person who <clears throat> learn the show can revive it you know that's a particular skill it was about it was quite a lot longer that I really felt like I was hitting my straps as a director and I think probably the breakout production was my production of Carmen that I made for West Australian Opera um, and I think I kind of lost my inhibitions. I knew enough about choruses and how to move them to really go for it. I was working with my dear friend, Dan Potra, the designer, for the first time. He was just out of 
NIDA. And I was working on a piece that really suited me because it was about a strong woman and I felt I had something to say. Um, so I was sort of age 30 and directed Carmen and did my what's now known as the feminist Carmen all those years ago. And um, that was when I really thought to myself, ah, now now I'm directing. I knew. And, and it was only it was kind of act four when I was directing Act 4, when I could really relate to that character and I could really tell the the singer what I wanted her to do that was very different to any Carmen she'd ever done. And I thought, okay, this is what it feels like. And I liked it very much. It felt very strong. So. The, the feminist Carmen, yes. But um, it, it was a Carmen which, which yes, as a, a female director, uh, gave us a perspective that, audiences hadn't had before in in an opera which does have misogynistic elements so um yeah yeah um so gender disparity in the arts it's probably a good segue now to, to talk about that we're getting better at that aren't we but there's still a way to go yeah yeah there's still a way to go I mean we are getting better um opera still has a way to go ballet still has a way to go um still kind of astonishing that um of all the ballet companies in Australia, there's still no artist, female artist, hasn't been a female artistic director since Maina Gilgood. Maina Gilgood, yeah. Pretty amazing, really, when you think about the, the you know, legions of young ballet girls and their mums who are holding the whole industry up, you know. So not to throw shade on ballet, but that's, that's always seemed a bit weird to me. And opera is, is, is definitely trying to um, play catch-up uh, the numbers, the numbers are still down, but they are getting gradually getting better. I don't think there's anyone working in opera who isn't aware of the problems that need to be addressed. Um, and so, I guess it's now about keeping the keeping uh, keeping the, the focus on that detail, that piece of that piece of um, work that needs to be um, ad addressed. I think it'll take a while. In ten years, I think it'll look very different. Um, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I used to. Elka was the only female director that I knew of when I was growing up, and I actually got an Australia Council grant uh, when I was a young <laughs> assistant director to go to England to watch a woman directing an opera. Wow! Wow! Yeah. <laughs> and I did, and I thought, goodness me, they're just like men directing operas. And, you know, that was pretty, it was pretty, I was pretty much a unicorn for a long time, um, certainly as an artistic director of an opera company. Um, but, and, you know, it's, there were times that you just, that one was really aware of, of, a certain misogyny, um, for example, that production of of Carmen that I'm talking about, that I've just been talking about all those years ago. I got hate mail for that Carmen, really, from really? men who thought, who told me very absolutely clearly that I'd got it terribly wrong and that that you know I'd I'd emasculated the men and defeminized the women and their, Carmen was was meant to be a um, you know sexy, but also she deserves what she gets. Which was pretty astonishing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was a bit frightening. But um, I think all those things have 
I thought I think we're through those things. And I think once we start having equal number of um, female creatives and conductors, directors, designers, not just the costume designers, but I, I do think everyone's eyes are on that problem. And as you say, in a decade, we, we hopefully will be in a, a, a much different position. Maybe even shorter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I do, I feel very optimistic that it's, it's the problem has been talked about a lot. And I think you, if you don't, if, if, if I mean, I think if, if opera companies go, go back to that sort of standard of the sort of boys club um, running everything, um, I think uh, it would be well and truly noted and, and they'd be pushed back now. I think we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the end of your eight years apprenticeship uh, as assistant director, what was the first gig that you were given uh, by yourself to 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 helm? Uh, well, I continued to to assist a bit while I was doing early gigs. So I think the first one of the first things I got to direct was at State Opera of South Australia. I got to direct uh, it, the Italian Girl in Algiers, which started a really uh, a long years long continuing. Uh, relationship between Rossini and myself. Um, there was a weird period in um, 2016, 17, 18, where I was the queen of Rossini. For, I directed just Rossini opera after Rossini opera. Um, and and I, that all began with the Italian girl in Algiers. Um, yeah, I don't know. I directed a, a lot of stuff for Victoria state opera and uh the pearl fishers I actually took over I think somebody else was going to be directing the pearl fishers that that was a co-production between opera australia and the victoria state opera back in the day and um and I remember I was going to be the assistant director and then the director pulled out and I just went and sort of stamped on the table and said I want to do this, and they gave me that job. I think they didn't have time to look around <laughs> to anyone else, <laughs> but they gave me that job. Um, and I remember also another thing that fell in my hands. Um, I mean, I'd been directing for a while by then, but um, was was when I directed uh, Richard Mills' Batavia. That was the first time I was ever given a big new new work. Um, and I was really excited about directing a new a new opera. So that was exciting. Um, my first overseas production, my first production outside of Australia was um, Ptolemeo by, by Handel in, uh, of all places, Bruges. I was directing for a small company in, in um, Belgium. Uh, that had no money, but it was this completely odd. They'd, they'd heard about me doing Alcina for West Australian Opera and they brought me in to do um, to do this Ptolemeo and that was pretty exciting too, to direct in those beautiful towns, Bruges and Antwerp and, you know, amazing, amazing places. Um, yeah, no, early, early, early productions, yeah. When was La Pericole? Because I, I remember that was the first time that I'd encountered you when I was visiting Sydney. I went to see La Pericole at the Opera House. Oh, wow. My goodness. That was, um, that was, I was very lucky because I had Moffat Oxenbold was really a big 
mentor of mine and a big supporter. He was very supportive of, of me. Um, and he was, a, he was an amazing supporter of female artists. When you think about it, when he was artistic director, there were two women conductors on salary at Opera Australia, Julia De Plata and Simone Young. And they were, you know, they were conducting everything, those two yeah. amazing women. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and there was myself and Elka. There were other, you know, and that was an amazingly kind of interesting period um, for directors too. But, yeah, Moffat gave me Pericol. That, uh, that came after the Pearl Fishers. Uh, and Pericol was um, because I really loved directing comedy and that that came up um, and what a gorgeous piece the gorgeous, pericot yeah. was, yeah. Yeah. Another terrific passion of yours is the creative landscape in regional Australia. Um, yeah. And indeed, that's what your PhD was was concerned with. Um, th there's a rich regional experience, isn't there, through through various festivals and experiences that are on offer. Um, and they're just as vital to those communities as what we get in the metropolitan area, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the other thing I I have discovered since I've moved to regional Australia, I, I now uh, live and and where possible work in regional places. Uh, I live I've lived in here in my home in Tarthra for um, over twenty years, and I've just finished um, six years in Tasmania in regional Tasmania with ten days on the island. I've got a lot of um, a lot of experience now being in regional communities and seeing what's what's the creative landscapes are in these regional communities, and I have to say uh, there's a there's a real mismatch between what um, what people think goes on in regional communities and what actually goes on in regional communities uh, because I've, I've I my experience of regional Australia is that it is a highly creative uh, incredibly progressive arts environment of course there are um, as there are in cities you know kind of different categories of art practitioner but professional artists who live in regional Australia of which of whom I am one, yeah. <laughs> um, are, are professional artists who can who can claim um, all kinds of different kind of creative um, adventures, and it's certainly down here in the south coast of New South Wales where I live. There are actors, videographers, amazing musicians, composers, choreographers. Um, there's an incredibly rich writers. Uh, an incredibly rich um, arts community with whom collaboration is a complete joy. Um, so I think there's a massive opportunity to bring the two worlds of metro uh, metro creative and and regional creative together to find a completely new language. And that's that's something I'm really interested in. But certainly Tasmania, you know, there's all these amazing people who live in places like Tasmania and and Darwin and oh, the, the Territory and people who choose uh, to live outside of cities, not because that's that's a sort of a B-grade um, career move, but because that's the way they want to live their lives. And I think more and more, um, if you look at the demographics of 
the world and certainly post COVID, you know, the, the, the growth in regional um, uh, Australia is is phenomenal and the cultural lives of those places is really important um, of, of these places where we live is an incredibly important part of, of life in our, in our communities. And so for me, it's a great opportunity to, um, I don't know, to, to sort of even up or create an alternative perspective on the national cultural landscape through a perspective of uh, regional Australia. And those arts experiences in, in regional Australia shape young people who grow and, uh, and nurture young people and develop who become practitioners on the world stage, whether that be actors, singers, directors, designers. Yeah, so, well, that's the case so. in cities as well as, as, well as um, in regional places as well. I mean, I think it it it, it, uh, it is important to have, you know, rewarding cultural experiences in each of those places so that it's not just you know you don't have to just leave and go to a city to have a have an incredible cultural experience down here in where I live on the south coast of New South Wales there's a youth dance company there are incredible um, musicians some of whom record in uh, I work with an artist called Heath Cullen who records his music in LA but lives in Candelo to you know 15 minutes from Bega. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a, a number of people that are you know are actors who work for Sydney Theatre Company but come home to to you know this part of the world to live. I mean, there's a it's it's an it's not a um, for the professional actor, professional artist uh, living and working and and creating in regional places can be an incredibly nourishing way of being than living in a, you know in a ver the vertical environment of um, of the city. Lindy, when you're working in the theatre, um, do you um, honour any superstitions? Not really, no. I'm <laughs> the question. I do have some rituals, and I do have some really strong, um, I guess, uh, things that are are my absolute basics that I need and the creating a culture of um you know of of collegiality and and a and a sense of a sense of a, creating a little family or a little hut of people who are trying to to achieve the same thing um is where I focus rather than being superstitious now what why I'm just sort of thinking though do I have any superstition um we always have well I mean I guess it goes without saying that if you you have a fantastic dress rehearsal you're kind of thinking oh no <laughs> it's going to be awful it's going to be the next one won't be as good as that um but I don't know no not really I don't think so do you ask everybody that is that a absolutely that's a standard question some people certainly are you know they don't like whistling in the dressing room or um uh, anything like no. that so yeah no. well what about a ritual on opening night is there something that you, you you do on every opening night that you have I have a few wines because I get terribly <laughs> nervous <laughs> I get very good. nervous I don't I don't do anything kind of spooky um I probably uh I probably spend a bit too much money on clothes or buy myself a present to sort of get myself through it I get terribly nervous and it's ridiculous you think it's going to get easier as you get older but it 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 never does um no I just 
I think we all just, you know, check in with each other and make sure that everybody knows how much, how valued they are. And, um, and I'm, I'm pretty meticulous about making sure I thank everybody who's been supportive and because uh, I think that's really important. Um, no, I, I don't, I don't have any rituals. Sorry, bit boring, what a, isn't it? <laughs> what about no, not at all. What about reviews? Do you read reviews? Oh, with a grain of salt, yes. Um, it, again, that should be something that uh, one gets better at because one knows if one has done good work or bad work. And I've, you know, I've had great reviews for things that I haven't been particularly happy with. Um, and and you know tepid reviews for things that I when I feel like I've smashed it out of the park so or that have meant a lot to me um, so I try to not be too thrown by reviews uh, and and I try to keep it in context of this is what they do we do something different um, let's just keep our heads on our shoulders. <laughs> Um, no, it's hard, it's hard to not be, um, affected by a bad review. Um, uh, but it's also hard to, if you take, if you listen to that and you get upset about that, you can't, you know, you can't really go. I mean, the good reviews are, are lovely, but then you have to take the bad ones too. So I don't know. Yeah. I try not to get too fussed about them. Well, congratulations on uh, the success of Domineo. And uh, we certainly look forward to seeing it at, at the Opera House uh, in February, March next year, 2020. February, yeah. Um, yeah. I am super excited about it. There's something quite unusual about this situation too, that um, uh, we get a chance to do it in a very different setup in in Sydney. So it, it'll be great to be able to, you know, take a few things, a few lessons from this one and shifted into a different environment in Sydney. Yeah. Lovely. All right. Thank you, Lindy. It's lovely to talk. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Lindy Hume's 2024 summer program for OA highlights the virtuosity and scope of Australian talent, both on and off the stage, as well as featuring a premier selection of international guest artists and celebrates the potency of opera in contemporary storytelling. Lindy Hume's curation of this program has been highly collaborative and it includes a number of milestone partnerships for OA, including those with Victorian Opera, Pinchcut Opera, Circa and Opera Queensland and we'll see OA make a welcome return to the Sydney Festival program. Thanks for joining us in this episode and thank you to my guest, Lindy Hume. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Thank you.